0: As many of you know, Redemption Hill along with 300 other churches uh, in the Richmond area are going through a series called Explore God, where we're discussing some of the harder questions about God, Jesus, the Bible, Christianity. Uh, We've looked at uh, life's meaning, God's existence, the problem with evil and suffering, and the exclusivity of Christianity, but today we want to take a closer look at Jesus um, and ask a question that people have been asking for centuries about him. Is Jesus really God? And so this question is an important one, one that both skeptics and believers alike have wrestled with. And the answer to this question is important as well because whatever conclusion we make about Jesus carries implications that reach into every area of our lives. And so the answer that we arrive at today isn't as important to a pastor or to a church or even to Christianity as a whole as it is to Jesus. We see that he actually asks of us the same question, whatever our association is to him. And so for a moment, we place ourselves in a conversation uh, in Caesarea Philippi that happened over 2,000 years ago. Jesus asked his 12 closest followers, who do you say the Son of Man is? And they answered, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, or, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets to which Jesus responds with an even more direct question to them, but who do you say that I am? So this is the question that's presented to all of us as well. Was Jesus just a good teacher? Was he just a prophet? Was he a lesser God as some Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons would would say? Well, in an attempt to answer this question, we'll look largely at the historical information about this man, Jesus. And listen up, information has its benefits, but this just becomes another history lesson if all I do is give you enough data for you to make your own conclusion about Jesus as a historical figure. This question isn't simply a historical one, it's a spiritual one, one, again, that has implications on every aspect of our lives, because if God exists, as Raymond pointed to and answered wonderfully uh, just a few weeks ago, then what this question implies is that the all-powerful, all-wise creator and designer of the universe has done far more than simply bring to existence everything that is, and then stand outside of it. No, this tells us that it implies that God actually gets involved with us. He actually enters into time and space, into this world during a particular period of time, as a particular individual. He interacts with his creation and speaks particular things to people about how we regard him, how we live amongst each other, and about life after death. And so if Jesus is God, then... This question has massive spiritual implications for every person that has ever lived and it means something for every person on this earth as to how we consider Jesus. And so my aim is to, uh, today is to answer this question in the affirmative by giving you proof for why Christians believe this, why we believe this. And this is a sermon, not a lecture, and so part of this time will be spent presenting proof for the existence of Jesus as a man, and then examining the statements that he made and others made about him. And like proof for any other historical figure or event, I want to present the data concerning Jesus and what has been recorded about him, and I want to spend the rest of our time answering the question of what difference does it make whether or not Jesus is really God, And so before we answer this question today about Jesus and divinity, let's just take a look at the man Jesus. Did he even exist? Was he a mythical figure as some have proposed? Well, the majority of uh, scholars and historians, both Christian and secular, will readily affirm that Jesus uh, was a Jewish man who lived over 2,000 years ago in first century Palestine. And this is largely due to the many extra-biblical sources uh, that chronicle the, the person of Jesus. For example... Tacitus, a Roman historian in the first century, records that the Roman emperor Nero, he blamed the Christian community for the fires that he started in Rome, which would eventually burn nearly the entire city. Tacitus states that Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Politus. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, but even in Rome. Furthermore, a, uh, Josephus, a Jewish priest and historian who was captured and then later employed by Vespasian, the emperor of Rome, he records in an Arabic version of his writings that he says, At this time there was a wise man called Jesus. His conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets recounted wonders." So there are also many more historical recordings about the man Jesus uh, from first and second century politicians and historians, but for time's sake, we'll just look at one more, the Babylonian Talmud, which is one of rabbinic Judaism's collections of writings and it states that on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu, or Jesus, was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, He is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover. So, based on these three uh, extra biblical sources, Jesus was a wise man who was good and virtuous, he had disciples. He was a controversial figure who allegedly did wonderful works or, quote-unquote, practiced sorcery and led Israel into apostasy. Three, he was condemned to death by suffering the extreme penalty of Pilate on the eve of the Passover. And four, he was reported by his disciples to be alive three days after his crucifixion. While many of these historical accounts only contain brief sentences or headlines or observations about Jesus, we do have data that gives us a deeper look into his life. That data for most of us is right at your fingertips today. The gospels, the accounts that many of us refer to as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And while these gospels weren't written by historians or Roman officials of that day, they were recorded by eyewitnesses and those who were closely associated with eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew or uh, Levi was the former Jewish tax collector who was one of Jesus' 12 apostles. John Mark, an African pastor who founded the church in Alexandria and who was believed to be at the Last Supper and at Pentecost, was a close companion to Peter. Luke, who is also the author of the Acts of the Apostles, was the Apostle Paul's physician in the days of the early church. And the majority of scholars believe that uh, the author of John is indeed John, the son of Zebedee, who was also an apostle of Jesus. So the information about Jesus presented in the Gospels, therefore, all comes from people who were in direct connection with Jesus or who were associated with someone who was directly connected to him. Furthermore, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written within 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death, and John's Gospel was written roughly 60 years after Concerning modern scholarship, scholars both secular and Christian, liberal and conservative, conclude that these four Gospels are some of the earliest and most reliable sources for the life and the ministry of Jesus. And while many objectors deny the reliability of the Gospels by accusing them of being written with a theological agenda over a historical one, this doesn't necessarily mean that the authors neglected historical accuracy in the pursuit of communicating spiritual truth. Even us today, everything from newspapers to novels are written with an agenda and with a purpose. The same is with the Gospels. One scholar in particular, the late Michael Grant, a secular classical historian and author states that the consistency, therefore, of the Jesus tradition in the Gospels pages suggests that the picture that they present is largely authentic. By such methods, information about Jesus can be derived from the Gospels. And so even though Grant rejects the traditional authorship of the gospel, he also states that the main lines of Jesus' career and thinking and teaching can to some considerable extent be reconstructed through the pages of the gospels. So the gospels are historically reliable biographies or accounts of Jesus the man and therefore we can know that what's recorded in them are truly the words and the actions of Jesus. The Gospels record both the teaching ministry of Jesus and several miracles and exorcisms that he performed. Often referred to as a rabbi, Jesus' teachings centered on topics such as the kingdom of God and prayer, money, loving one's neighbor, forgiveness, mercy, justice, and the the meaning of the law of Moses. Based on what we read in the Gospels about Jesus' life and teachings, we see that he was a benevolent, rational, virtuous, logical, and sensible person. But according to these same historical gospels, Jesus also made some controversial statements during his day. If you read through the gospels entirely, you'll see that Jesus said things during his ministry, such as tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And even in that same conversation, Jesus also said that he had previously come down from heaven Furthermore, he said, whoever loves father and mother, son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's statements like these and many others made by Jesus that if this were all that he said, if this is all that we had to make a conclusion about him, then we might be in some trouble. Well, why? Because these aren't the things that people just say in the course of everyday conversation. These are the types of things said by people who are either unhealthily and overly empowered to their own deceit, such as a deceived king or pharaoh, or by those who suffer mentally, those who are completely desensitized, or not even particularly in what we would call their right minds. And yet here's Jesus a man who we've already concluded both historically and biblically who was wise, logical, and benevolent. Someone who, if he were like most logical, wise, and benevolent people that we know, and even cared the slightest about his reputation amongst others, probably wouldn't say these sorts of things. And yet he does. And he says them with the same genuineness, sincerity, and grace as he does when he says things like, love one another just as I have loved you. And still he says even more controversial things. One example, let's just fast forward briefly to the hours before the end of Jesus' life. The Gospels tell us, as many of us know, that Jesus was arrested during the week of the Jewish Passover. And he was given a speedy and unjust trial by the religious authorities who would ultimately condemn him and hand him over to the Roman government to be killed by crucifixion. But what was Jesus on trial for exactly? Why was he arrested? We'll look at Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 64. It says again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Jesus was arrested and condemned for blasphemy, particularly for equating himself to be God. And ultimately, in the eyes of the Romans, making himself to be a king rival to Caesar, uh, a king rival to Caesar and a God rival to Caesar, In John chapter 10, John records when the religious leaders uh, once picked up stones to to throw at Jesus because they said to him, you being a man, make yourself God. And so this answer given by Jesus in the moment of his trial was was no vague statement. The religious leaders and the, the people present knew exactly what he meant by what he said. And so in answering affirmatively, I am the son of God who is the blessed, Jesus has again equated himself to be God. And this time he goes even further in the next part of his answer. When Jesus states that you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, he's again saying that he's much more than a mere human. But this time he references an Old Testament picture to further back his point that he's claiming to be God. The words of Jesus here point to the prophet Daniel, who lived centuries before Jesus during the days of the Babylonian exile of the Jews. In Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, Daniel recounts a vision that he's seen and describes it as follows. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so in using the language that he does, Jesus intends to point to himself as this son of man. Another term that if you look throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses to refer to himself. The son of man who comes with the clouds of heaven, who is given authority and a kingdom and everlasting dominion and who sits at the right hand of God. But this isn't the only place where Jesus says something so explicit and controversial in claiming to be God. John's gospel highlights several particular sayings of Jesus in an effort to to prove something about him. John records throughout several of Jesus' teachings that he would say things like, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never go thirsty. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. See, while each of these things communicates something about who Jesus is saying he is in relation to us and to God, statements like these say much more as well. Notice that Jesus starts off each of these statements by proclaiming, I am. And this is no coincidence. These words, I am, actually point to an Old Testament event in which God revealed his name to Moses while speaking to him through a burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3, we see that God says that his name is, I am who I am. And he tells Moses, Moses, when you go back to Egypt, tell them I am sent you. And so here in the Gospels, Jesus is invoking the infinite name of the intimate name of God upon himself through the use of I am. And again, his audiences would have recognized this as he spoke. John also records another moment in the ministry of Jesus where he's having an encounter with uh, the Jews about their relation to their forefather Abraham. And after the Jews retorted against Jesus for claiming that he, a 33-year-old man, had been around long before Abraham, who lived roughly 2,000 years earlier, Jesus responds and says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And there it is again. And so now, after this long and heated dialogue between Jesus and the religious authorities, where Jesus said many things that they disagreed with, they now, after this particular statement, pick up stones to kill him. Well, why? Because he had taken the name of God for himself. So let's just slow down for a moment. Who says these types of things? Who talks like this? You've probably heard the popular statement by C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. Lewis states that a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or he would be the devil of hell or else he would be the devil of hell. From these words by Lewis, we get the shorter liar, lunatic, or Lord reference about Jesus. The point being that he's not just a good moral teacher. He's either the worst kind of deceitful cult leader who makes these sort of statements purely out of selfish gain and complete disinterest in others, or he's insane. He's completely irrational, and not just that, but powerfully irrational and unstable. Because one minute he's speaking wisdom that hasn't been heard in the history of the world, And shortly after, he's talking like the unwisest person ever, if what he says isn't true. But the point is this, no matter what category you place Jesus in today, the point is that you can't just leave him in the category of good moral teacher. Jesus takes himself out of that category in making such statements and claims to divinity. But even more than that, his actions and the actions of those who lived and interacted with him have taken him out of that category as well. If we just look at the Gospels, we see the many reactions of those who encountered Jesus and those who lived among him. How, how, how did they perceive him? Well, from the very beginning of his, early, of his earthly life, Jesus was revered and worshipped. We see that John the Baptist, his own cousin, joyfully leaps in the womb Empowered by the Spirit at the presence of Jesus during the early stages of Jesus' physical development in the womb. Angels proclaimed his birth to shepherds. Wise men who didn't know Jesus from the next stranger came from foreign countries to worship him. Voices from heaven proclaim him to be the Son of God at his baptism. Demons proclaim, proclaim him to be the Holy One of God as they beg for mercy from him. Roman centurions proclaim him to be the son of God and even recognized his authority during his life and even in the moments of his death. Blind men recognized him as the promised son of David. The disciples called him the son of God and even died for their profession of it. After living for three entire years with Jesus, spending nearly every day with him, they regarded Jesus as sinless, And even after his resurrection, Jesus is worshipped by some of the very first people who saw him. And furthermore, if we look at the witness of the Old Testament scriptures, documents which Jesus and the Jewish religious authorities relied on concerning the identity of the foretold Messiah who was prophesied all throughout the major and minor prophets, all throughout the, uh, the books of history and the Torah. Jesus fulfills each of the over 350 prophecies concerning the Messiah. And in addition to this, the Gospels tell us that Jesus himself backed up his claims by demonstrating power and attributes that could only belong to God. He displayed sovereignty over nature and the calming of storms. He displayed sovereignty over demons, power over sicknesses and diseases in healing people. He possessed power over the elements in turning water into wine and multiplying fish and bread. He displayed, displayed power over life and over death in raising the dead. He displayed omniscience in several interactions with people, knowing both the thoughts of their hearts and specific information about them without even being told. He knew who would listen to the, He knew who would listen to him and who wouldn't, who would believe him and who wouldn't. Furthermore, Jesus forgave sin, and not in the way that a priest does. He forgave sin as God, so much so that after telling a paralyzed man that his sins were forgiven, the scribes around him responded that who who can forgive sins but God alone? Furthermore, Jesus professed himself to be sinless, and from his conception, As the angel told his mother Mary, he was called holy. So do the gospels think of Jesus as divine? Yes. Some have thought no, because the gospels never record the specific words of Jesus saying, I am God. But Jesus affirms his divinity in several places in the gospels, along with the words and the reactions of others, friends and foes who either believed him to be divine or perceived him to be a man who claimed divinity. I'll just give you the words of Bart Ehrman, an agnostic atheist scholar and professor who focuses on the, the, historical and, uh, the historical Jesus and textual criticism of the New Testament. Ehrman recently stated this after he wrote a book entitled How Jesus Became God The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee, a book which claims that all of the Gospels except John didn't portray Jesus to be God. Ehrman states, In doing my research and thinking harder and harder about the issue, when I A, came to realize that the gospels not only attributed these things to him, but also understood him to be adopted as the son of God at his baptism, or to have been made the son of God by virtue of the fact that God was literally his father and that it was the spirit of God that made the Virgin Mary pregnant, and B, realized what adoption meant to people in the Roman world, I finally yielded. These gospels do indeed think of Jesus as divine being made the very son of God who can heal, cast out demons, raise the dead, pronounce divine forgiveness, receive worship, altogether suggests that even for these gospels, Jesus was a divine being, not merely human. So listen, to be fair to Ehrman, he believes that the sense in which each gospel displays Jesus' divinity is different, but overall, he affirms that the gospels portray Jesus as God in the flesh. So before we move on, there's one last action of Jesus, one last piece of historical data that points us to Jesus and his claims of divinity, the resurrection. If Jesus is really God, it's most clearly seen in his being resurrected from death. If Jesus has been resurrected, then this validates all the claims that he's made about himself, And as we know, Jesus was condemned to death by crucifixion on the eve of the Passover. The Gospels tell us that there was darkness that covered the region from noon until three in the afternoon. An event which has been documented by historians. Jesus was buried in the tomb of a rich member of the Sanhedrin. And three days later, his body is admittedly reported to be missing by both Romans and Jews, who then sought to make a, a conspiracy of it. And there were women who reported his body missing as well, who followed Jesus and visited his tomb three days after his death. And they proclaimed that he had been resurrected. Gary Habermas, a New Testament scholar at Liberty University, has composed up to to 12 facts that the majority, which is over 3,400 sources of New Testament scholarship, agree upon concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus. We'll just list uh, five here. And several liberal, skeptic, and Christian scholars all affirm through historical data and evidence that, one, Jesus died by crucifixion, that, two, the disciples of Jesus were sincerely convinced that he rose from the dead and appeared to them, and therefore they were subsequently transformed from doubters to bold proclaimers. Three, Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul, an avid and violent enemy of Christianity suddenly changes his beliefs towards Christianity. Four, James, the brother of Jesus who did not support his brother's three-year ministry, changed his beliefs about Christianity. And lastly, point five, which is a point that doesn't have the majority of affirmation from New Testament scholars, but three out of, out of four would affirm that this statement is historically reliable, that the tomb of Jesus was found empty three days after his crucifixion. Now, now, some will say that it takes faith and faith alone to believe in the resurrection of Jesus as if it's merely an unexplainable part of history that's quickly resolved with a spiritual solution. And make no mistake, faith in the resurrection is vitally important, but there, there are also some very credible and historical reasons for believing in it as well. First, if you just look at Jerusalem in the days following the crucifixion and even the empty tomb. Look how quickly Christianity spread throughout the city and how a body is never exhumed to disprove the resurrection. We see that in Jerusalem, 50 days later, uh, when Pentecost happened, Peter stands up before 3,000 people who would have been present during the death and resurrection of Jesus. We see that 3,000 people are added to the church after Peter proclaims the resurrection. But also look at the lives of Jesus' disciples. Again, we see men like Peter, a man who went from standing cowardly at a distance from Jesus during his trial, fearing for his life, denying Jesus three times, from that to standing boldly for Jesus in front of over 3,000 people 50 days later. These men, in a relatively short period of time, went from at minimal, confused, and even somewhat unsure about the identity of Jesus to bold and unwavering witnesses of Jesus again in a period of just 50 days. They became men who would die for this belief in his deity. Or you look at the apostle Paul, a man who wrote two thirds of the New Testament, a man who was formerly one of Christianity's earliest and most powerful opponents. Look at how quickly, not even 20 years after the death of Jesus, how quickly his entire perspective changed towards Jesus. And many people, they try to write off the disciples as being gulli- gullible and maybe uneducated fishermen. But look at Paul, this, this is a man who's well-educated, cultured, theologically robust, a Jewish Pharisee who goes from persecuting the followers of Jesus so harshly that he probably would have crucified Jesus himself, to writing to Gentile audiences that Jesus is the image of the invisible God the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Or you look at James, Jesus' own brother. We all know that family's not going to lie for you. (laughs) James, whereas the disciples lived with Jesus for only a period of three years, James probably spent well over 10 to 15 years of his life observing his brother Jesus and observing his three-year ministry and then rejected Rejected it for much of the time, only to change his mind shortly after Jesus' death. What happened? What causes this sort of instant reaction in sensible and rational men and women, and even family members? Well, let's ask one of them. Let's ask Paul. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. This is a portion of a letter written by the Apostle Paul and he writes to the Corinthians in verse three that I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, the first thing about this passage is is, it's it's believed to have been a a historical creed, an oral creed that Christians who lived after the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, as they were added to the church, they passed this oral creed to one another to continue to affirm the truth of the resurrection. The truth about who saw it, the truth about the importance of the gospel, what Jesus actually accomplished in sacrificing himself for sin, his resurrection. This was an oral creed that was passed around to people that could verify people, up to 500 of them, who witnessed the resurrected body of Jesus. So here we see it just four times within this small creed Jesus appeared. He appeared to Paul, to Peter, to the disciples, to 500 people. Again, most of them who were still alive and be able to to co-sign on that, and then to James. They saw him, they saw him, and this, this resurrection, this is what changes everything for these people. It changes everything for them, but why? Why does this change everything for them? Why should this change everything for us? Listen, based on the evidence presented, you may or or may not be convinced that this event happened. Maybe you're not. If you are, that's a, a step in the right direction. But have you asked yourself why the resurrection? Whether it happened or not, why this is significant for you? Sure, maybe you leave here today concluding that there was something more to Jesus than mere humanity. Maybe he is more than a moral teacher. Maybe he is God. But again, have you you thought about what this means for you? Well, let's let Paul keep talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus' resurrection has everything to do with us whether he was resurrected or not, is directly connected to our lives, our beliefs, and our hope, our purpose, which is why this can't just be information to you. It has implications. There's no need to further elaborate on Paul's words here. If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then he's not God because God lives. God exists. And every claim of divinity that Jesus made about himself was a lie if he's not resurrected. Furthermore, if he's not resurrected, then I'm wasting my time standing here speaking to you. Even worse, I'm lying on God. If Jesus isn't resurrected, then you're wasting your time being here this morning. You'd be better off doing something else, pursuing something else. Or as Paul says later, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That if Jesus isn't resurrected, this life is all that there is. If Jesus isn't risen, then the verdict is still out on where we stand with God. The judgment still remains. Furthermore, we've been exposed to be severely narrow-minded. If Jesus isn't resurrected, then there's no purpose in our suffering. There's no meaning in life. There's nothing after this life. We are immensely pitiful. let's let Paul keep talking. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And listen, this has everything to do with us. If Jesus has been resurrected from death, then he is God. Because if Jesus is resurrected, it points to the greatest cosign in history. If Jesus is God, it confirms, as Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 18, that he has power to lay down his life and take it up again. Furthermore, God the Father has stamped his approval, his ultimate affirmation on all of the words and the works of his son Jesus by raising him from the dead. As Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus has been resurrected, that it means that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. There is no other way to God but through him. If Jesus is resurrected, then the words of Paul in Colossians are true, that it is by Jesus, the eternal son of God, that all things were made and all things are held together. If Jesus is resurrected, then all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, which means us. If he's God, then it means that Jesus is our creator, the one to whom we are accountable, and that when he speaks, he speaks authoritatively. He speaks sovereignly to us. If he's God, it means that our lives have meaning and purpose. His purpose. It also means that our suffering is not in vain. That the sufferings that we experience as humans are not solitary and purposeless, but God has come into this world through the person of Jesus and He's felt and endured the very same sufferings, but for an eternal purpose. So the question is asked, is Jesus really God? The answer is yes. But as we close today, I would follow that answer with an even stronger statement. Jesus must be God. See, we know that Jesus was indeed a human like us who lived in this world, but he must be fully God because if we're honest, that is our only hope. No other teacher has made these claims that he has made. No other religion professes this. Just look at this world that we live in. We just witnessed a hurricane take the lives of over 800 people in Haiti. This world frequently experiences earthquakes, calamities, famines, and natural disasters. We all agree that this world is not as it should be. And even more, one look at ourselves will tell us the same thing. Violence, fear, anxiety, murder, theft, adultery, sicknesses, genocide, racism, poverty, and on top of it all, suffering and death. It comes to all of us, and yet it never ceases to shock us. We know that this is not the way God originally made things to be. The disobedience of our first ancestors to God's commands have plunged this world, this universe, and all who live in it into condemnation and into a condition of brokenness and sinfulness. And as a result, everything and everyone remains under this sentence of condemnation and judgment. We are eternally, infinitely, and justly indebted to our Creator, and we have nothing by which to pay for our crimes, and there's nothing we can do to change our condition." Because of our sinful human condition, redemption can only come through human perfection. And because of our condemnation, redemption can only come through uh, our bearing the full weight of our punishment. Death, and eternal separation from God. And again, if we're honest, we can do neither. On our own, none of us can live in perfect obedience to God, and none of us can overcome the penalty that we deserve. And this is why Jesus must be God. He must be fully human in order to represent our condition and our plight, but he must be perfect in order to be our substitute. He must be fully divine in order to bear the full weight and the penalty for our sin, and he must be fully God in order to conquer the death that we deserve. For us, if we're to be saved, accepted in the eyes of God, forgiven, shown mercy, delivered from death, if creation is ever to be redeemed and restored, Jesus must be God. And this is what he has done. Jesus has lived the perfect God-honoring and obedient life that you and I should live but fail to every day. Through his life, He achieves for us a perfection that we could never earn, and through his death, he bears the punishment for the life that we chose to live instead. And Jesus dies, not for his own sin, but for our sin, taking upon himself the judgment and the death that we deserve, and in being resurrected from death, he proves that he has abolished our sentence of death. The sacrifice that he has made has been good, and has exhausted and quenched the wrath of God. He's shown that he is stronger than death, giving us life, reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of our sins, and the removal of our punishment. Who do you say that I am, Jesus asked? Peter's response is you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The answer to the question, is Jesus really God, is one that can ultimately only be revealed by God. But in the words of C.S. Lewis, again, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. So listen, as we close today and as we prepare for communion, consider again this question that Jesus asked his disciples, that he asked all of us, who do you say that I am? The historical information presented here today alone will not be enough to convince you of Jesus's divinity, But like Peter, the father reveals himself through the words and the works of his son. As we get ready to reflect and to take communion, let's just listen to one more claim that Jesus makes about himself. As he sits down with his disciples for the Passover meal during the last week of his life, Jesus breaks bread with his disciples and tells them that this is my body, which is given for you. And then he takes a cup of wine and tells them that This cup represents the blood which will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Listen, today, take a moment, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, to reflect on and look at the sacrifice that Jesus has made on the cross. And his resurrection from death three days later. Through his son, God offers the forgiveness of your sin, your failures, your shortcomings. He offers new life. God displays his love, his mercy, his grace, and he extends it to all those who will trust and believe that this sacrifice of Jesus was for them. Today, if your hope is in this sacrifice that Jesus has made for you, be refreshed and reminded that Jesus did not count equality equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and died for you he achieved what you couldn't and he, uh, he eliminated and removed the penalty that you could never escape respond today if your hope is in his perfect work, turn from sin, receive his grace and celebrate what he has accomplished for you today if you are here and You find yourself still still wrestling with the claims about Jesus and what he has said about himself and his sacrifice that he's made and his resurrection. Take a moment to look at some of the scriptures that we've looked at today. Read the Gospels. Take one of these Bibles with you and, and think about these things. Talk to God who alone can only reveal these things about his son. And he will answer Jesus will respond because he is alive. He is seated at the right hand of God. And he will save all those who come to him. If today you still wrestle with that, remain at your seat during this time and watch as those who come forward who say that there is no hope to be found in ourselves receive the grace and the forgiveness and the acceptance that God has given to us through his eternal and divine son, Jesus.